This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, I'm Nick. And I'm Victor. And this is Megashane. Megashane is a queer, people of color, weekly podcast, and we talk about anything from drag, to comics, to video games, to... Boys. And anything else in between. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you can follow us on Megashine Pod and Megashine on Twitter. That's right. So follow us, talk to us. We'll be here. And we out. Shannon. CG. Lauren. And Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerdsofprey. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at universalfancon.com because geek is universal. Hey there, this is Ava DuVernay, creator of Queen Sugar on OWN, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Yo, what's up? This is Shale Hidari Coker, the showrunner and creator and executive producer of Marvel's Luke Cage. You're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. All right, you know what it is, what it was, what it will be. It's your main man, Jason Mitchell, and you are rocking with Black Girl Nerds. Hi, this is Karen Pittman. I play Inspector Priscilla Ridley on Marvel's Luke Cage, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, this is Maya G from Rain, a fan film about Storm, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Andre Meadows. I have a YouTube channel, Black Nerd Comedy. Have you heard of it? Don't matter, because you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast, the best podcast in the whole world that I'm doing a promo for right now. Boom! tuning in to episode 119 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled Awesome Con, Created Equal, and Well-Read Black Girl. Three incredible segments. And our first segment, which is actually technically divided up into two segments, is our time over at Awesome Con. Had the fantastic opportunity to interview two 
popular voice actors. Our first interview is with actor Phil Lamar. You probably know him best from Mad TV and also from his voice animation work in shows like Static Shock, Justice League Unlimited, Futurama, Samurai Jack, and so much more. He's also done a lot of work in video games as well. We sit down on a one-on-one and talk about his voice acting work, his work on Pulp Fiction, and we do talk a little bit about Universal FanCon, which he will be a featured guest. In our second segment, Kari Payton. You know him as Cyborg. He talks to us about his work on Teen Titans. He also plays the role of King Ezekiel on The Walking Dead. And we go into some interesting territory about Ezekiel's wig on The Walking Dead as well as a mention of Sally's beauty supply store. Yeah, it's a fun one. In our second segment, Karan does a one-on-one interview with filmmaker Bill Duke and actor Greg Allen Williams of the film called Created Equal. And in this segment, Karan interviews filmmaker Bill Duke. You know him from several films as both actor and director and actor Greg Allen Williams to talk about Created Equal which is a controversial film that explores the issues of women becoming Catholic priests. It was recently chosen as an official selection over at the American Black Film Festival on June 15th. In our third segment, Kendall interviews Glory Edom. Glory Edom is the founder and creator of Well Read Black Girl. Well Read Black Girl is a Brooklyn-based book club and digital platform that celebrates the uniqueness of black literature and sisterhood. So that's our show, three incredible segments filled with fun, entertainment, wisdom, and some great anecdotes from all of our guests. Enjoy BGN 119, Awesome Con, Created Equal, and Well-Read Black Girl. Phil Lamar is an actor, voice actor, comedian, and impressionist. He's one of the original cast members of the sketch comedy series Mad TV, and he's had an extensive voice acting career with major roles spanning animated series Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Futurama, Samurai Jack, Static Shock, The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, Ozzy and Drix, Family Guy, and Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. He's also done a lot of voices for video games, such as Metal Gear Solid 2 and 4, Final Fantasy XII, Infamous, and Dead Island. He's also known for playing the small role of Marvin in the Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction. So, thanks for tuning into this live edition of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie, I'm your host. We're here at Awesome Con, and I'm very pleased to have none other than the legendary, legendary, yes. Legendary (laughs) makes it sound like I'm almost dead. (laughs) But Um, I'll take it in the spirit as given. Phil Lamar, voice actor. You've heard him everywhere. Samurai Jack, Stack Shop, Justice League Unlimited, Futurama. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Phil, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Oh, thank you, Jamie. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I want to first talk about how we first met, because it was on Twitter, and (laughs) it was during 90s live tweet, we were live tweeting the movie Pulp Fiction, and I think a lot of people were, like, tagging you in our tweets, because you Uh kind of stumbled onto our feed, Right, right. and what was really cool was you were joining in with us and engaging, 
and asking or answering rather our questions when we were asking you about various scenes. In right, the movie. right. So talk to us a little bit about Pulp Fiction because that movie still to this day mm -hmm. everybody talks about. Um, mm -hmm. What was it like working on that film and working with great folks like John Travolta and Samuel Jackson? Um, well, I mean, to me, the thing that makes that experience stand out the most was the quality of that script. Mm. I mean, it was Tarantino's second movie. He had done Reservoir Dogs, which had been critically acclaimed, but wasn't a big hit, right. you know. Um, and they, for Pulp Fiction, he was only able to get together a budget of $8 million. You know, because, like I said, Reservoir Dogs didn't make that much money. But the thing was, you had, you know, huge stars at the time, like Uma Thurman and Bruce Willis. Mm. You know, John Travolta had been immense and at the time was not at his height, but, you know, incredibly well-known. You know, Samuel L. Jackson hadn't exploded yet, but, again, critically acclaimed. He was basically at the level of Reservoir Dogs. And all of these people, you know, took whatever pay cuts they took to be a part of this, you know, as well as, you know, the crew and whatever. It was not a big-budget thing. It wasn't like, oh, here is the next big hit. It was that script. Everybody who read that script said, this is fantastic. This is, I mean, because the thing is, you, over the years, you read a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Some movies are better than the scripts. Some scripts are better than the movies. But it's rare that you find a script that jumps off the page and into your head the way this one does. It was just so incredibly well written. You could see the world that he was creating, and it felt real, even though it was like nothing that anybody had ever experienced before. Like, no one had seen gangsters like this, you know? A lot of movies about hitmen, but not like this, you know? And I think that's the thing that got everybody in and made everybody committed to it and made everybody happy to be there every day. It was the best set I've ever been on. That was a very intense scene that you were in, too. And like I said, you were with really great folks. John Travolta mm -hmm. was in that scene, Samuel Jackson, Frank Wally. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like just in the filming of that? Like, how did you prepare for, for that part? Um, well, you make sure you know all your lines, you know all your beats, you know everything you can know about your character um, because you're going to be working with you know, people at the top of their game. Yeah. And I can imagine it was pretty intimidating walking in that room with those guys. Well, the great thing is uh, Quentin made sure that we all had rehearsal before shooting. Partially so that, from a technical standpoint, everybody knows what they're doing and it can go faster on the day because, again, low budget, time is money. You don't have time for a whole bunch of takes. You don't have time for people to go, well, I don't know. You know, everybody's got to be on it. Um, and rehearsal helps people get on the same page so there's not, you know, miscommunication and stuff. But it also helps give a level of comfort, you know, personal comfort, you know, between the actors. Uh, so I had met... Uh, and had lunch with Sam Jackson and John Travolta prior to that. Oh. So it wasn't... You were able to ease into it. Well, and also, I mean, it, it made it easier to not get wrapped up in my head, yeah. you know, about it. Um, also, the fact that neither one of them was as big at that time as they are now. Right, sure. Um, sure. But once we got on set, it was... I mean, you were playing the scene. You were focused on nothing but playing the scene, getting those words, you know, and do, doing those words, you know, justice, mm -hmm. you know, because that whole just sequence between Sam and Frank, you know, it's like, you know, they speak English and what? I mean, it's so <laughs> funny, 
you know, but at the same time, it's a life and death situation, literally life and death. You know, Burr's on the couch. Halfway through the scene, he gets killed. Exactly. You know, which that never happens, you know, but it was it was so amazing because you've got a scene that's pretty intense to start with. Two hitmen burst in on a bunch of, you know, inexperienced guys and they're questioning them. Most people just leave that alone and let it go play out to the end. And then there's a shooting. He kills a guy in the middle and then continues the, t- the discussion, the dialogue. But emotionally, what that does is, for everybody in the room, it just jumps up a level, right. you know? And while we were shooting it, you felt it. You know, you were in this, we were in a soundstage in Culver City. It was hot, you know? And I think they actually had done a couple of the, the shots of burst, you know, flock of seagulls on the couch. So you had the cordite in the air, you know? Mm-hmm. It was warm and, you know, and Sam is so good that even though you know him and you know he's and you're just talking to him a second ago about you know golf or his daughter whatever when he became Jules you actually felt fear mm. you know it, it, it wasn't acting <laughs> you know it was just, just looking at this man and it's not the same guy you wow. knew he just is yeah it was incredible you know you I mentioned at the beginning your voice work You've done so many characters throughout the years. What was your gateway into voice acting? Like, what got you into this interesting and compelling field that you're in? Um, I don't know that there was one. I mean, to me, it's it's not a field. It's it's simply a subset of everything you do as an actor. You know, I mean, it's funny because nobody ever asked me, you know, because I did the Pee Wee Herman show uh, on Broadway. And nobody ever said, what got you into theater? You know, it's like, because I know I'm an actor. <laughs> and it's like, well, you, you're an actor, you do a play. Yeah. And to me, it's like, well, you're an actor, you do a play, you do a TV show, you do a movie, you do a cartoon. It's all the same job. Right. Taking, you know. that voice acting, that that's a smaller community of actors mm-hmm. as opposed to theater actors, film, television. So, because I know we had talked to Cree uh, Summer on our podcast a few years ago, and she said that her father kind of helped her get into it. Right. So, was there some moment that made you realize that this was something that you really liked? Like, did you impersonate cartoon characters as a kid or anything like that? Well, see, now, Jamie, you're, you're getting it mixed up. Okay. We don't get jobs by liking them. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff I like. I'd like to star in movies, but I don't because those are up, not opportunities that come. You know, um, I do think that I have a skill set that over time has lent itself to uh, doing voice work um, maybe more easily or than some other people. But... Um, I mean, the sketch work that I did studying at the Groundlings and on Mad TV um, is sort of a parallel with creating multiple characters, you know, vocally. It's, you know, it's finding different points of view and multiple ones quickly, you know, which is part of the job um, in, in voice acting. Because, you know, they get three characters for the price of one. So they don't need to hire somebody who can only do one. Right. They, you know, they try to get their money's worth. Um, and... I've always had 
um, a pretty good ear for accents and an interest in it. Um, more so than I'm, you know, a cartoon person. You know, although I loved, I mean, I always say one of my favorite actors that I you know, always looked up to was Bugs Bunny. You know, um, just because that I character. I refer to Bugs Bunny as an actor. <laughs> you know, now granted, the performance of Bugs Bunny is a collaborative effort. You know, because I, I always think that, you know, as voice actors, we're at most a third of the character. Because without the drawing and without the writing, you know, it would just be us doing a voice saying nonsense. Yeah. You know, um, you need all three for the character to be fully realized, you know, um, or it's an audiobook or something. Right. Um, but. <laughs> It's been interesting to me because my, you know, we started doing uh, claymation stuff on Mad TV, which was really where I got my mic time in, which I think is really important. You got to get behind a mic and know how you work. And I think it's, I think it's the same thing with with on camera. Like there are certain movie actors who know the camera and how they work with the camera and how the camera works with them, and those are the ones who become stars. You don't become a star by accident. You know, and I don't think you become, you know, a, a solidly working voice actor by accident. You know, you have to know what you're doing. You know, and I think some people, yeah, some people know it on a conscious level. Some people know it on an instinctive level. You know, there are a lot of people who come at it from, you know, a musical background. They were singers first, then get into voices. But that's that same thing. When you're a singer, you know your voice. You know how to express things through your voice. You know, and it's just a, a short jump from song lyrics to dialogue on a page. Right. You know, you just take out the melody. I know people probably have asked you this a million times, but... Then don't ask me. Why are you going <laughs> to ask me the same damn question? I'm... Go ahead, I'm kidding. Um, who's your favorite character that you've oh, ever see, no. why? No. <laughs> no. I start my panels usually with the disclaimer that I will not take that question. You will not take that question. I don't want no questions that start with favorite, most, best, you know, or pranks. Because the thing is, when somebody asks me what my favorite is, they don't really know. They don't really want to know. They want my favorite to be their favorite. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And they Especially want... Especially within the nerd and geek community. Right. Very passionate. Yeah. Well, and also, what's my favorite is not necessarily interesting. What's more interesting is you tell me what your favorite is and what perspective or remembrance I have about that character. That's actually going to be more interesting to you than me saying my favorite. And also, the truth of the matter is, I'm really, really lucky. And I've gotten a chance to work on dream projects. You know, uh, I've gotten to be a Jedi. You know, I've gotten to... uh, you know, be the first African-American superhero with his own TV show, you know. Um, I've gotten to be the Green Lantern of Earth who gets caught, you know, on trial, put on trial for murdering a planet and had a love triangle, you know. Um, I got to be part of Samurai Jack. Yeah. For me to try to pick one of those, even, it's dumb. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, which, which is your favorite... $400,000 car. Like, I will take any of them. You give me a $400,000 car, I'm going to drive it. 
I don't need a favorite. Um, but, but also the truth of the matter is they all came along at different points in my life and different points in my career. Um, and that's part of the experience, too. You know, there's, you know, I think people look at a show and say, oh, that's my favorite show. It's like, well, for me, the experience of making that show is who was I working with? You know, was that the show that got me my health insurance? Because I'm going to like that one a whole lot more. Exactly. You know, and. Benefits, man. And what was the working experience like? And how much was it, you know, how was it received? You know, that's those all those things mix up together uh, in my feelings about the work I've done, you know. And it's funny because there are some things that I think I'm trying to think if there's one thing. I don't think there's anything that people come up to me and say, oh, I love it that I absolutely hate Mm -hmm. and thought I was bad in. Um, Generally speaking, the quality shows through. I'm trying to think if there were, I mean, I'd say Mad TV is probably the closest where the experience of creating it um, was farther away from people's enjoyment of it, just because it was a, it was a, a hard show to work on. Um, but I definitely have incredibly oh, fun. Um, the way it was run uh, was, was not... It wasn't well run. So it, that makes the work harder. Okay, yeah. You know, like if you, if, you, if you work in a factory with, you know, where it's disorganized and, yeah. you know, you, you, and your boss doesn't treat you well, that makes, even though the work you're doing is not directly related to that, mm-hmm. it does make it harder to do it. Right. You know? So. Um, but even there, I have incredibly fond memories. There are sketches that I absolutely love and people that are still my friends to this day, you know, well, long at, more, more than 20 years later, Yeah. you know. Awesome. Well, UPS guy is my favorite, so. Thank you. <laughs> and, that, and that one holds a special place for me because I created that on stage, you know, really? by myself okay. before the show, and I brought that to the show. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and... It's definitely a character that I, you know, fought to keep, you know, solid. I mean, I I'm not going to say pure, but, you know, there were pitches for sketches and I'm like, yeah, no, that's not what he's about. Right. You know, and I think they wanted to do more of those sketches than we did. Because um, you know how it is. Sometimes producers are about cranking stuff out, rather, about the content rather than the quality. Right. It's like... You know, and and there are other char- other characters in sketch who people know just get overused and overexposed. Like, oh, they're doing another one of those skits, you know. And I, I mean, it wasn't so much about I never wanted it to be that as much as if every idea they came up with was good, then I would have done one every week. But it ain't that easy. Sketch comedy is like baseball. If you hit one out of three, you're doing really good. <laughs> You know, so yeah, I just tried to with that character to make sure that the sketches were solid, you know, and served the character and were in line with what he's about. He wasn't just about jumping around. There were a couple of pitches like, oh, he's just jumping around at a urinal. Like, well, what's the sketch about? It's just really, really funny to see him. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, no. Let's, let's, let's keep working on that one, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Universal Fan Con, and yep. you are going to be a future guest at Universal Fan Con. Right. So um, tell us a little bit about your con experience, because you go to so many a year. Do you have like a favorite moment that you enjoy the most when you're doing all of these cons across the country? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to... My favorite moment is meeting people at the table. Um, just that moment of connection. Because to me, that's what it's about. You know, um, because I'm not a writer. I'm not a creator. Uh, I can't take ownership of these shows that people love and tell me have affected their lives and, you know, made them feel happy in times that they were down or whatever. I can't own that. But I do enjoy and accept my responsibility as being basically a gatekeeper. You know, I'm their chance to get a little bit closer to that show that has such meaning for them, you know? Um, and I think that's an important responsibility. So for me, the autograph is, you know, just the reason we get to meet. But it's a meeting that's really, you know, significant. Um, and I'm trying to find... Like, because the panel thing then becomes less of that, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just like, hi, this is me up here talking about me <laughs> to all of y'all. And I've over the years have struggled with finding the purpose of it. Mm. Um, and what I'll tend to do is I'll focus on answering the questions and they tend to get a little dry and dull. And then I'll get to the end, and they'll start, wait, you got five minutes? I'm like, character. well, and then I'll just, like, realize, oh, I've gone 45 minutes, and I haven't done any of the voices. And that's actually really what you guys want, isn't it? And then I, you know, see people like John Barrowman, who puts on a show. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is supposed to be a show, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm, I'm still working that out, <laughs> you know. Excellent. So what's next for you? Are there any future projects that you're working on that you want to let our listeners know about? Um, yes, I'm uh, working on um, a new series on camera uh, called Get Shorty. Uh, it's going to be on Epics uh, starting in August uh, with uh, Chris O'Dowd and Ray Romano. Um, and it's you know, the same premise as the, uh, the book and the movie, Gangsters in Hollywood. Um, but it's all new characters, and it's really, really good. And I get to play a, a smarmy uh, studio head. Um, and I'm also working on a personal project. Um, uh, some friends and I are adapting uh, a webcomic into an animated series. And um, that's still in the beginning stages. Um, but I'm very excited about it. And it's, it's, it, it's some deep geekery. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I will definitely, uh, as soon as we get all our ducks in a row, I'll be, you know, putting that out there and, and hopefully we can talk some more about that. You know. Universal yes, Yeah. indeed. And where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, most of the time I'm on, on Twitter at Phil Lamar. Uh, it's all one word, two L's in the middle, two R's on the end. Um, and also uh, I have a Facebook uh, page where I keep things pretty much up to date. Um, that's uh, Phil Lamar on Facebook and my uh, website, philamar.com. Thank you, Jamie. Kari Payton is best known for his role as Cyborg in the animated series Teen Titans, as well as Aqualad in Young Justice. 
In the cartoon series Justice League, Peyton provided the voice of the villain Ten from the Royal Flush Gang. He also provided the voice of Drebin in the game Metal Gear Solid 4, Guns of the Patriots, as well as Ripcord in G.I. Joe Renegades, Blade in Marvel Ultimate Alliance, Grimlock in Transformers Robots in Disguise, and Killer Croc in Batman Arkham Underworld. You can currently find him on the AMC hit series The Walking Dead, where he plays the role of Ezekiel. Thanks for tuning into this live segment of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. Very excited to have Kari Payton here at Awesome Con. He's been here. He'll be here all weekend. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, sure. Well, we've been, we've been talking about talking for a while. <laughs> you know, we're finally in the same building. we got to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. So how's your Awesome Con been so far? Oh, it's been great. The uh, You know, everybody's... I mean, I'm just, I'm lucky that all of my characters are very affable dudes, you know? I don't, I don't have any, like, uh, I mean, I've got some villains, but it's usually because I'm also playing their, their, their very affable young, young son. So, so uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I've got Black Mana, but, but I've also got Aqualad and Cyborg and, of course, King Ezekiel. So, so you can't really go, go wrong. It's just a big love fest. We're having a good time. You know, the fans are really excited for Young Justice, and yeah. Aqualad is, you know, there's a thirst trap with Aqualad in the Black Girl Nerds community. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a thirst trap, really. It's <laughs> a thirst trap, yes. Have people we been love drawing him. a lot of thirst trap? Is that what's up? <laughs> He's one of the sexiest animated characters in it's television. Re- you know what? He, he, he sounds incredibly sexy. I've always told everybody that, you know, and everyone tends to agree with me. Yeah. I've, I've, I've gone way Trump with this right now. Like, I've heard everybody saying it. Aqualad's so sexy. He's incredible. There's no one sexier. On a scale of 1 to 10, he's like a 40. <laughs> That's an amazing Trump impression, I just got to say. <laughs> I didn't even know I had one. I just started throwing it out. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. You know, that means I've been listening to way too much Trump. That's what that means. We all have, unfortunately. So how excited are you for this new season? Because, I mean, I think the fans essentially are responsible for this show coming oh, into absolutely. the fold. Well, and, and the, um, yeah, yeah, binge-watching it on Netflix is what made this happen, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and the fact that, that the, uh, the, the show was doing well before it was canceled anyway, it had nothing to do with how well it was doing. It was just, uh, you know, a victim of circumstance, really. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and the Green Lantern movie that will not be talked about. What Green Lantern movie? Exactly, exactly, <laughs> you know. Ryan Reynolds had redeemed himself. We won't we won't talk about it anymore. But um, but yeah yeah. So thankful that that it's back. And I've done uh, about five episodes so far. I've read six, and I am astounded at at what they're doing with with this show. I'm I cannot wait for people to see it. It is not what you expect, but it is better than I thought it was going to be. If 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 that's a, a possible thing, because when I went back and watched the, the the first two seasons again, just to uh, you know kind of reacquaint myself before we started again, and uh, I was just reminded of how good a show it was. It's such a great show, and uh, and uh, they've taken season three and gone in a direction that I did not see coming at all. But at the same time, it it is I kept stopping and just telling Greg Weissman. Uh, who's the you know the writer creator of uh, Young Justice? I was just like I, I just I just can't believe how you continually are able, you know, to to set the bar higher. You know, it's it's um it's it's not at all what I thought it would be, 
but um, but is it's it's so good. It's so good. I'm I'm really hoping that everybody will like it. And it's such needed television because you know Young Justice is incredibly diverse, and we need to see those kind of animated shows on sure. television right now. So. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and it really is about this uh, this third season, and uh, and honestly, is Young Justice has always been, but it's about it's about how our differences make us unique and yet at the same time how, how those differences make us all the same you know and it's a uh, it's a, a a beautiful metaphor that's kind of you know layered and uh and and somehow permeates the the entire series you know i'm really excited about it out of all the characters you play is there a favorite for you i know that's a question you probably get asked a million times but there's not a favorite uh, honestly because uh because i keep i keep running into characters that are that are too complicatedly beautifully simple and and uh and and tragic and complex and and beautiful all at the same time you know to 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 get a a character like cyborg a character like like uh like calderon uh and 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 now to to play someone like king ezekiel is is uh it's it's not something most people are afforded you know and uh and uh to pick one of those three i think would be kind of crazy you know (laughs) any of those over the other because uh because there, there are certain things that that i just can't get to as an actor in one that uh that another one gives me in spades you know it's like it's like the uh the way that that uh cyborg is so exuberant is the is the same uh there's a there's a beauty in the way that that uh that calder always holds everything back you know and is uh and is always kind kind of kind of uh, 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 finding the boundaries, you know, and thinking of, of, of the higher good before himself, you know, and then, uh, and then Ezekiel is, is kind of this crazy hybrid of both, you know, and, um, and uh, uh, has this, has this very, uh, what, what do you say, a, be, a very uh, uh, telltale or, or What's the word that I'm thinking of? He's it's it's specific that he's made the decision that I'm going to be this way, you know, and uh, and and has become that, you know, over the course of time, you know, it's uh, I, I don't I, I couldn't ask for better. It's like if you if uh, if you filled out a survey and and asked somebody to to tell you what did you want in characters to be able to play. Yeah. If I asked for more, then I'd mask him too much. You know right, what I mean? Right. They, then you just become an asshole. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's like it's all oh, the tiger and the dreadlocks and the kingdom's too much for you, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now you want him to fly, you know. It's uh, it, it'd be it'd be asking way too much to ask for more. Well, let's talk about Ezekiel a little bit because this character he's so multi-layered and multifaceted. Mm. And one of the things that I found really fascinating with you playing him was there was like some code switching happening where he would speak the king's English in one moment sure. and then he sounded like Tyrone from across the block. So <laughs> Did was it sound that like something? Tyrone? Is that what happened? <laughs> I want to meet Tyrone, Jamie. <laughs> he sounded like Tyrone for a <laughs> um, Was that something that was in the comics, or is that something that you added to the character? No, no, no. That was in the comics. That 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 was. Uh, but but um, or at least there was a change that 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 happened in the comics. Now uh, the idea of his voice changing, uh, that wasn't written, and uh, it was the, they were saying that he changed his physicality. He he wasn't standing like a man. But to me, it all depended on the voice you know that that's what i heard as i was reading that that, that's uh that was the first thing that came to me and um and i think it it was uh just the fact that i've done so much uh voiceover and shakespeare growing up that that it it, uh ended up 
being that the linchpin, I think, that maybe got me the job. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, that was the thing that I hung my hat on. Right. You could change a lot of things, but that vocal quality was what drew you in, you know. Thoughts on Ezekiel's wig? <laughs> it's a freaking awesome wig. Do you have people who hate my wig? Some of us think it's a little extra. <laughs> no, I think I think it's a little perfect because the thing is, okay. is that there are so many. The nice thing about living in Atlanta right now is there are dreadlocks everywhere, everywhere. Go to Piedmont during like the Jazz Fest. There's every kind of dreadlock in the world, and there's the ones that are just barely hanging on. They're the ones that are, you know, and so so anybody who's like dreadlocks don't look like that. They only seen like two people. They know two people with dreadlocks. Right, right. You know, there there is a huge diverse quality to uh, to what dreadlocks could be, and uh, and what I love about this wig is that we weren't trying to look like the uh, the comic book. Okay. What we were trying to do was was find out what sensibility made it work for this guy. You know, and so uh, and and so that's that's the the cool thing about it is that every head is is uh, is unique, especially when you're not talking about braids. You're talking about dreadlocks, and how much you're able to um, uh, uh, to care for, you know, a head of dreadlocks versus someone who's able to to uh, n- to do everything they'd like to do in something that's not an apocalypse versus the hair that somebody gets when uh, when when uh, this is the best I'm going to be able to make my hair work, you know, when I can't run out to Sally Beauty Supply every, every right. couple of minutes. You know about Sally's? Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you don't know, when I, hey, there, there was like, I, what, 15 years ago, there's a, there was a videotape, okay, that went out to Sally Beauty Supply, like, employees every, every month. Okay. And, and, uh, and like, me just out of college was like the dude who was like, hi, this is Kari Payton from Sally Beauty Supply. You're good. That was like one really? of my first jobs, like out of out of. So you did like commercials for Sally? No, no, no. It was it was like it was like in house to the employees videos. training videos, wow. tell them about the new products and, and all of this stuff. My other one was uh was I was the uh, the host of the CPR video that went out to like uh, like medical schools wow. to teach kids kids uh, I mean kids to teach uh, medical students CPR. My my brother's a doctor, and a couple of years after, I'd forgotten all about it. He's like, Kari, did you do a CPR video? And I'm, I'm literally like, hi, I'm Kari Payton. Yeah. And using this video, you too could save a life. Literally, like, like what, one of my first things out of college. Sally Beauty Supply, CPR. Wow. See, these are the questions that, or these are the answers that we get only on the Black Girl Nerds only podcast. Only on Black Girl Network. I, I, I'm <laughs> telling you, I have never told anybody that. So, that is so, amazing. That's a first. <laughs> so, um, so, I know you... so I know all about the dreadlock stuff. Okay. So... <laughs> We'll be a little bit nicer about the dreadlocks on social media. Um, And then I know you best, too, as uh, Cyborg from Teen Titans. Yeah, of course. You know, Cyborg is going to be in the new Justice League film. Were you involved with that in any way? And I know eventually Cyborg's going to have his own movie. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean... What are your thoughts on it? I was involved in it because there would be none of that without the first Teen Titans, you know? so, So I feel like a proud papa because... When Teen Titans came out, Cyborg was an ancillary character in the DC universe. And uh, if you read comic books, you knew about him. I mean, I, I bought new Teen Titans when I was a kid. And, uh, and uh, uh, I bought that, that specific cover, number one, because I was like with that magenta sonic boom coming out of his cannon because I wanted to be Cyborg. And, uh, and lo, those many years later, you know, I, get, I remember getting the... Uh, that the uh, uh, the picture 
you know, on the little copy that they have you read. And I and I, I looked at the picture and I was like, Cyborg, this doesn't look like Cyborg that I remember. But I went and got my comics and I was like, this this is the same thing as Teen Titans. Yeah. And I was so excited. And um, and uh, from there, that first Teen Titans show, all of the Teen Titans took off. But uh, you know, especially you know for diversity reasons, you know, you need you need uh, you need Green Lantern to go flying off to the other side of the universe. Need another black dude? I'm your dude. <laughs> Not to mention I'm tech savvy. You need a dude who can work the computers. You need a you need a tech guy. You need a yeah yeah. Warner Brothers should be cutting you a check for that when the Justice League film comes out. Because truth be told, if it wasn't for Teen Titan Cyborg, yeah. Cyborg wouldn't be a popular character that he is today. No, no, absolutely not. I, and uh, and uh, it's it's really cool to see the way the character's taken off. And and uh, and uh, you know, I mean, it's it. You know, I'm 45 years old. I'm gonna, I'm a little long in the tooth to be. I don't believe you. know, doing an 18 year old origin story, so it doesn't <laughs> kill me that I'm not in the movie. Of course, I wouldn't say no if they'd have said, you know, but yeah. I'd have worked that out somehow. <laughs> but I, uh, but uh, I think that it's it's uh, it's just kind of an amazing thing to see happen over the course of the last 15 years. You know, it's like it, cyborgs. When, when you're a kid growing up these days, cyborg is one of those huge uh, superheroes you know and it's uh it's a beautiful thing to have been a part of what's a nerdy or geeky secret about you that nobody knows about i don't know everybody knows my nerdy geeky secrets (laughs) you know i do too many interviews now for people not to know my nerdy geeky (laughs) secrets it's uh that's gonna that's gonna take me a second i'm gonna have to like delve deep way way deep down to figure out uh what is there a uh, hobby that you're into that like most folks probably would think oh okay I think Kari was into that. No, no. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I, I, I love to hike. I love to, to, uh, to, uh, to surf and snowboard. Although I don't get to do that very often. I don't play basketball as much because I still think I'm 22 years old, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm a bust my ass, you know, out, out there. Which is why I hike more, so that I don't kill myself trying to be, you know, Allen Iverson or something. But, um, but no, no. I mean. Everybody knows that that uh, that I loved reading comics growing up. I was a Marvel kid. I wasn't a DC kid at all. I was I was West Coast Avengers. I was X Factor, X Men, you know, and of course Spider Man. Spider Man growing up to me, it was it was like when he put that mask on, and he could be any color. You know, when I would play Superman or Batman on the playground, sometimes some asshole would be like, you know, you can't be you know Batman because he's white. You can't be Superman. He's white. And uh, Spider Man. I would always like. I would always say, "You don't know what he is," you know. I was. It was. It was. Uh, I tell people it was the, my fr- my first, uh, you know, idea of Schrodinger's cat. Right? It's like you don't know what's going going on in that box when he puts that uh, when he puts that mask on. All of a sudden, Peter Parker might be black, and then lo and behold, years later, Miles, Miles. It was like he wrote it just for me. Ha! <laughs> ah, so awesome. But yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I was a huge. Um, uh, uh, Marvel fan growing up, which is why this whole Marvel universe is just absolutely like, like my childhood coming. You saw life. that Black Panther trailer. Black Panther. I, I, I watched it over so many times. I, I dreamed about like, like running through the, you know, the backwoods in my house. You know, being Black Panther, being in, in Wakanda. You know, they, they could. There's so many ways they could have made it gaudy and too much. And I mean, he couldn't have been more perfect in, in Civil War, and uh, and and not only that, that the fact that they they gave him this 
this anger and this angst, of course, with his father dying. But uh, but but for him to be the one who says, I'm not going to let anger consume me just it's like it's like he's the best uh, that, that Black Panther could be. You know what I mean? That maybe this is what people don't know is that is that I'm I'm living my dream through the through this this world of, of comic books that I've loved so much for for uh, for all of my life, and uh, and to see it come alive come alive, you know, on on movies and TV, but then literally it become my livelihood. You know, I don't know what I'd be doing if it wasn't for comic books. You know, giving me these characters yeah. to be able to play. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I bought that book because I was like, I can be that guy. Yeah. I am that guy. And you get paid for it, which is I amazing. Get paid to be that dude. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. So, aside from your work with The Walking Dead, Teen Titans, Young Justice, are there any other future projects that you're working on? There, I, I'm also doing uh, uh, Big Hero Six for uh, Disney, and uh, of course, I'm still doing uh, Lion Guard. I play Rafiki on the. On the uh, Lion Guard, which I absolutely love, it's the most fun you could possibly have doing voiceover. It's like if you know, I, I had to call my mom. You know, there was the one time I called my mom to tell her that I was taking over the voice of, of Rafiki. You know, but he's just—he's so big. I'm glad I only have to do him for like 20 minutes at a time, because okay. he's also the most exhausting. Because he gets so big, and then he comes sound small, and he's got to be in that different way all of the time. You know, it's so exciting. You know, he's so exciting. And so excited, and uh, and uh, but now I know why Robert Guillaume was like, I ain't gonna do that anymore. <laughs> Somebody else can do that. I'm tired. Exactly, I'm tired. But it, it is, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a blessing, man. All of these things that I that I'm continuing to be able to do. But uh, yeah, Big Hero Six, uh, the 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 Lion Guard, um, and of course, uh, Teen Titans Go, Young Justice. Honestly, with that, I really don't have a whole lot of time to, to do anything else. Yeah, do you sleep? Is Question. Not much, not much. You know, I mean, we're we're uh, we're up at at four thirty in the morning, and I get home about eight thirty at night. You know, I I, uh, I eat a little bit, I work out, and I, I knock out, and get ready to do it all again. And it's hot and it's sticky and, and muddy and, and nasty and gross. I wouldn't have no other way. It's like it's like all of that is some kind of glue that pulls us together on on that set. You know, uh, and. Uh, in uh, south of uh, Atlanta and Georgia, and it's and it's it's um, it's it's a communal thing, you know, that we all take such ownership of it. Right, right. Well, where can our followers find you on social media? Uh, I'm at uh, Instagram, Kari Payton, and uh, Twitter, Kari Payton. It's uh, real easy to find me if you know how to spell my name. <laughs> awesome. In a world where gender equality remains a critical issue. This controversial film doesn't set out to challenge the Catholic Church doctrine, but asks the modern question. Should women be allowed into seminaries to study for the priesthood? Created Equal is a film that gives you a voyeur experience into a stained glass ceiling that exists in the Catholic Church and asks the question about women being allowed into seminaries without actually taking sides. The film stars actor and singer Aaron Tveit, Eddie Ganim, Johannes Miles, veteran actors Lou Diamond Phillips and Greg Allen Williams, who's featured in this interview, along with filmmaker Bill Duke. Hey guys, it's me. This is Karan with Black Girl Nerds. And you know, there's some days when I know life is really good, and there are others when I can't believe I have the privilege of speaking with those that have shaped my artistic life. Two such gentlemen join us today. 
nothing short of legendary Mr. Bill Duke, through his work as an actor, director, and documentary filmmaker, has not only helped shape the perception of black men in Hollywood, but also examined the value and love of black women. Emmy Award-winning actor Greg Allen Williams is not only one of the bravest artists I know, but continues to inspire through the controversial and challenging roles he continues to embody. Please welcome Mr. Bill Duke and Mr. Greg Allen Williams to the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) So glad to have you here. Now, you guys are involved in a project called, a movie called Creative Equal, which will debut at the African American Film Festival. Mr. Duke, let's start with you. Why was it important for you to become a part and direct this film? Well, thank you for having us on. Um, I uh, wanted to be involved because, uh, you know, Theta Carlton, uh, the producer, uh, and Roger Brown called me, and uh, we spoke about the project, and I just, the subject matter of a nun wanting to become a priest in the Catholic Church was something that was fascinating to me, and the fact that the script did not take sides, but it presented in a very, I think, honest and compassionate way, both sides of this dilemma. And so I really was attracted to that fact. And um, then the people that were involved, you know, Greg and everybody. So it was something I really wanted to be involved in. Now, this is a really stellar cast, including uh, Mr. Greg Allen Williams. For those of uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, one of the breakout stars, Emmy Award winning actor from Greenleaf, uh, who plays Uncle Mac, one of the most controversial roles on television, brilliantly portrayed by you. And you play Judge Watford. What has participating in this project meant for you? Well, you know, I, I was anxious to come aboard principally because of a fellow named Bill Duke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard of him? But it, <laughs> so it was an opportunity, you know, to work with a, a brilliant director. Um, also, you know, this film is produced by a woman, Theta Catalan. Yes. And you know, I'm a big fan of, of women filmmakers, and this is such an important project you know, about, of course, uh, a a nun who wishes to become a young woman who wishes to become a priest. And as I was saying to some friends over dinner last night, uh, this film from the outset uh, reminds us how um, joined, how tied are the rights of women and the rights of people of color uh, in, in uh, in our society in our democracy and it's just an important story to tell now this question goes out to both of you religious freedom is is mentioned uh, in the film it's mentioned uh, in the film and is in part a character of the film whether or not this is an issue of religious freedom or freedom of the people who practice the religion this woman is determined she's called to the priesthood against the wishes and the tradition of the church. Is this an issue of religious freedom or the freedom of the people who hold it up? Because every church across the board, uh, at least in Christianity and the Catholic Church, more than 75% of the makeup of the church, the people who support and show up to the churches, are women. So is this religious freedom or is this about control and leadership of those who participate in it? Well, I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, you know... um 
anyone that is in a particular religion, um, I think there are, in their minds, souls, and hearts, there are rules and regulations and traditions, etc., that they follow and they believe in from their souls. But then time passes and time changes people's minds about things and people want to, you know, expand, you know, on those rules, etc. And some are resistant to that and some are are in favor of it. I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think you'll find members of the church that will say, yes, there should be women priests, uh, there should be women bishops, uh, there should be um, women pastors in the, Bap- in the Baptist church, whatever. But then there are people who feel that things have been a certain way all along. Let's not disturb the pot. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are freedoms that are both sides in the equation. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I have to go along with Bill. You know, I heard a guy say one time that he figured people should be able to worship God any way they want, as long as they understand there is a God and they ain't it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you, you know, I, I, I have to say, you know, what's important probably is the challenge to tradition. The, you know, there were traditions at one time in this country, um, not only laws, but traditions that said that, you know, black folk uh, shouldn't vote. And black folk and white folks shouldn't marry, and black folks shouldn't learn to read or to write, et cetera, et cetera, or hold office. And those were as much traditions as they, you know, were also based in some sort of misguided legality. Mm-hmm. And because those traditions were challenged again and again and again, things began to change. I don't know that we can really tell any sect, any religion, any faith, you must do this or that, but we must support people who are part of those faiths, those sects, to um, challenge tradition. Now, the, the central character in the film, she actually faces the threat of death. She faces disconnection from the church and her family for pursuing what is her call. So this question goes out to both of you. At any point in your career in life, can you tell us about a time when you were willing to risk everything for what you believed about yourself? Well, I think we all go through those. <laughs> we all go through those things um, in our industry. Um, when we first, when I first started out um, directing, um, there weren't many black directors. Uh, there was Gordon Parks. Um, I think Stan Lathan and maybe a couple mm-hmm. of other people, but there weren't many black directors, and I was the first black director on um, uh, Dallas, and when I drove up to the gate um, that morning uh, for pre-production, the guard, um, I drove up to the gate, and the guard asked me, who was I delivering for? (laughs) And, um, (laughs) you know, You know, the night before, I, I, I had I had um, I had seen something on TV, Dr. King, and he gave a speech talking about never stoop to the level 
of your enemy, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, 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 I ended up saying, I wanted to say to him, what I'm delivering is um, a can of whip ass to you. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I didn't say that. But I said, I'm here and the first black director on Dallas. And would you please let me in? The greatest satisfaction was the look on his face. And he had to open the gate, even though he didn't want to. Yeah, nothing, nothing satisfies so much as victory and excellence mm. um, is, is absolutely the, the greatest revenge. Um, you know, I, for me, April 29th, 1992, intersection of Florence and Normandy, I had the good fortune to intervene on the half of a on the on, on the behalf of a fellow American who was being deprived of his liberty at that intersection. You know, who was you know being beaten by people who looked like me. Um, you know, people who themselves had been victimized and ostracized, and and murdered and deprived of their liberty. But you know, look, they're they're human beings. Um, and, you know, so on that day, you know, as I sort of, you know, waded through them and, and out to this Ford Bronco to, to pull this fellow out, um, you know, there are a group of Native Americans um, who I like to call first peoples, mm -hmm. like the Canadians, who say, you know, it's a good day to die. And I think, um, you know, risking one's safety and one's well-being in defense of liberty is um it's a worthy calling um i hope i don't have to do it again because i love living amen you know what i mean <laughs> I, I don't want to take those kinds of risks but it would have been virtually impossible for me not to intervene on that day and still be able to look myself in the eye in the mirror I know that uh, as artists, we tend to grow a little bit with every single project we take on. So again, to both of you gentlemen, what has working in this project uh, taught you? Um, I, I think I think I think it has taught me um, in terms of the subject matter itself that. Um, and I always try to do this in most of my projects, but particularly this one, it was not easy. Um, but to not determine uh, what you want the message to be, but let the audience determine what the message is. In other words, respect the intelligence of the audience. Mm -hmm. Um there's nothing more powerful than the truth. Um, and sometimes if we put our opinion between the audience and the truth, um, it does us a disservice. And it does a disservice to the part, to the uh, project also. But to try to, as succinctly as possible and honestly put forth, um, you know, it, it, it's like watching Dexter, you know. And watching Dexter, you're not supposed to like him because he's, a serial killer. Mm -hmm. um, but once you show his humanity, along with the humanity of others, something happens. And it's challenging. 
And those are the kinds of things I like to be involved in in terms of projects, things that challenge us in terms of our preconceived ideas of each other. And so for me, it was a great lesson to go through whatever my prejudices are to give as honest a depiction of both sides as possible. On, on on my end, you know, as human beings, we can get caught up in our in our own struggles, in our own challenges, and well, we should because there are struggles and our challenges. And and I think, you know, working on this project has given me just a heightened awareness of the longings of others and the obstacles that others face. Um. You know, Eddie's character represents in this film countless women in the Catholic Church who long and have longed to become priests. You know, and so I'm I'm aware. So now when I, I you know, I went to a Jesuit boarding school for a time and so now when I in, in, encounter Catholic female friends, or, you know, I encounter um, nuns, and I encounter folk, I'm more aware of what might be going on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with them. And, and you know, um, who was it that said, um, it said something about, um, oh, I can't remember, doggone it, I can't remember the quote right now, but it's, oh, yes, St. Francis said, it is better to understand than to be understood. Mm. So I think that's very important. This this film is, has, has grown my understanding. Speaking of milestones, this film will make its debut on June 15th at the American Black Film Festival. What does it mean for this film to be chosen to make its worldwide debut here? Well, I think it's an honor to be here. And I think we're, we're more than appreciative for their recognition of our work. Uh, They said very good things about the film. And we're hoping that we'll pack that audience tomorrow with people and have a talk back that really you can see what people feel about the movie and the subject matter. And so we're excited. You know, it means a great deal to us to be here and particularly at the American Black Film Festival and its tradition of being here for 15 or more years and uh, to invite us is a privilege. So we're hoping that uh, all goes well. I'm honored. I'm telling you, I'm honored. This is ABFF. (laughs) This is a hard nut to crack in terms of um, the, the films and the kinds of films that make it into this festival. So yeah, really looking forward to the screening tomorrow. Mr. Duke, what's next for you? What do you have coming up? Uh, Well, there are several things that are in development, um, but I'm really, really focusing on a couple of things. One is I have a foundation called the Duke Media Foundation, and we we teach young people from the age of 14 to 18 um, media literacy. What are the jobs going to be in the future? Mm -hmm in front of, behind, not the camera, but cell phone apps, virtual reality, et cetera. And um, we teach financial literacy because we're, we're really told basically as a culture how to 
spend money, but not to use money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we teach them what the stock market is, what's the FDIC, what is credit, what is debt, those things. So that's one of my real passions, and I'm, you know, really um, putting my board together and, and, and trying my best to reach young people because we have some issues that we really face in this community with our young people that we have to address. There, in L.A. County, for example, um, there's young people graduating from high school with second and third degree, second and third grade reading levels. Mm-hmm going into a global economy. This is, this concerns me. And so that's one of my biggest priorities right now in terms of what I'm doing my energy. Bill has such an altruistic spirit. Um, it's just um, a remarkable thing. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, he's been in the business so long, uh, mentored so many and inspired so many his altruistic spirit and efforts are just such a blessing. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Duke, I, I will concur. Your work has just, I mean, I've, I've known you since I was old enough to know who a black actor was. And I hear you often described as an imposing figure because you're so tall and, um, and such a very large presence, but I've never heard anything negative about that presence. It's always been one of generosity and giving. So I thank you for your contribution mm-hmm. to the arts. Absolutely. Well, God bless you for that, and thank you. Now, Mr. Williams, um, can we yes, talk ma'am. about Uncle Mac for a second, just for a quick second? Uh, uh, sure, yeah, we can talk about Uncle Mac, absolutely. Okay, mm-hmm. so I cover Greenleaf for Black Girl Nerds, and, and many of us follow and live-tweet the show. Uh, what on earth? possessed you to take the role of the uncle none of us want to talk about? Well, I mean, there, there, there can be no good without evil. Mm-hmm. Um, you better preach. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, especially, you know, in, in, a, in a story arc, but you know what? Here's the deal. I, I, I love a challenge. I love a challenge. Um, it was clearly a very challenging role, and it may have been a role that you know, a lot of people were afraid to take. You know, there are a lot of actors who really protect their image. In other words, you know, they, they sort of want their uh, on-screen image to, um, you know, reflect sort of who they are. So they're, they're reluctant, and I understand. I mean, I understand that. But you know what? Look, I'm 61 years old, you know, what I mean? and I know who I am, and the people who know me know who I am, so who I pretend to be, uh, I, I'm really not so worried about uh, at, at all. Um, you know, it's a challenging role, a magnificent task, mm-hmm. really sound writing. And as I was saying to Bill last night, the writing is always the DNA. You can't get blood out of a rock. You can't really <laughs> render a, a powerful performance or portrayal, as I prefer to say, with bad writing, with weak writing. You know, and, and so when you've got the strong writing, how can you mess it up? So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been a wild ride. I'm grateful to the audience for understanding that there's a difference between the actor and the character, certainly. You know, but it, it to me, it's a magnificent opportunity. And I have, I've got to add this. Uh-huh. It's an opportunity that has come because black folk 
gave birth to it. Yes. And mm-hmm. and nurture it. I mean, it's a mix of folk, but this is the sort of thing you get when black people are empowered to tell their own stories. It's really remarkable, both of you, such incredible bodies of work, such it's it's really an honor to to know and to understand that you are leading the charge of the next generation of filmmakers and you're still so very relevant, so very current in your own work. Um, I know that Theta Catalonia is the producer of this film, Created Equal. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Well, it was, um, it, it was great to work with her to see a black female put in a position where she had to, with very limited resources, bringing together the director, the crew, the actors, everything, and everything was on her back. And um, she, she not only carried the load, but she really, in situations that were very, very challenging, she came through and was a catalyst that made it happen. And so mm-hmm. we are grateful. Uh, and it's not just because she's a woman. She's good at what she does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, you know, we're at the festival today. And um, we got the film financed, and she and Roger did a great job. So we're really grateful to her and, and hope to do it again. Oh, yes. Well, I want to thank both of you for your time today. It, it Again, I keep saying it's an honor and a privilege because it really, truly is for me. Um, you can find out more at createdequalmovie.com. Where can we find both of you online? Well, you can, I'm, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, all of that. So please um, just go to, you know, Facebook, look up, you know, uh, Bill Duke and uh, same thing with Twitter and I'm there. Right now, um, primarily uh, at heartofawomanbook.com, heartofawomanbook.com. Uh, my novel, uh, Heart of a Woman, is, is uh, the audio book will be released uh, in August in conjunction with the second half of the, uh, of the uh, second season of Greenleaf. Uh, and there, folks can, if you think Uncle Mac is dark, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can go to heartofawomanbook.com and sample the audio book. Um, and uh, it might be something that uh, women will enjoy. My goodness. My many thanks. Much gratitude for joining us for the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Glory Edom is the founder of Well Read Black Girl, a Brooklyn-based book club and a digital platform that celebrates the uniqueness of black literature and sisterhood. Well-Read Black Girl's mission is to increase the visibility of Black women writers and initiate meaningful conversations with readers. Glory has worked as a creative strategist for over 10 years at startups and cultural institutions, including the New York Foundation for the Arts and the Webby Awards. Currently, she is the publishing outreach specialist at Kickstarter, where she helps writers use the platform to build community and find support for their creative endeavors. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. This is your host, Kendall, and joining me today is Glory Eden. Glory is the founder and creator of Well-Read Black Girl, a Brooklyn-based book club that celebrates the uniqueness of black literature and sisterhood. So if you love books, but you don't follow her on social media, you should. 
Glory, thank you so much for speaking with Black Girl Nerds. Hello, I'm so, so glad to be speaking with you today. Um, I love Black Girl Nerds, so I'm glad to be here. Yay. <laughs> okay, so Glory, we were kind of talking a little bit um, before we started recording, but um, you and I, we've been in contact for a little while. Yes. Um, so I know a little bit about your story, about how Well Read Black Girl got started, um, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with well-read black girl just kind of walk us through um, how it got started what it is and how people can get involved yeah okay so um in 2014 my partner got me this shirt for my birthday he made it himself and it had the words well-read black girl on it it also had um this like logo in the middle that had all my favorite authors so there was like Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and Gloria Naylor and then it had my birthday right in the middle and so when I got this for my birthday I was super excited it was an inside joke between him and I and I started wearing it out in public wearing it to the gym wearing it on the subway here in New York and people would come up to me and ask me where I got the shirt from and you know I would kind of recount the same story of like oh my boyfriend made me this for my birthday and something about just the conversations I was having with other black women on the train on uh, just like throughout my daily commute it inspired me to decide to actually take it to a ne another level and create a book club around it um so I ended up in the summer of 2015 gathering a couple of my close friends together and we had a very small intimate book club we decided to read ta Coates book um between the world and me and it was a, it was just a very like informal discussion we were talking to one another and from there I decided to invite an author to come so it was it was like all these things started coming together it really wasn't like a planned effort it, I've always had a book club it's something I've always been drawn to and I was new to New York at the time um, I hadn't lived here very long and I was looking to meet other women other women of color to connect with and so the book club became this community that I built very organically and the first person we ended up um, inviting to the book club was Naomi Jackson. She had a new book out at the time, and it was called The Star Side of Bird Hill. And I was at the Greenlight Bookstore over in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and she was signing books. And I came up to her, and I was, you know, I just asked her to come, and she was very gracious, and she said yes. Um, so it was, it started with this T-shirt, and then ended up an in-person, like real life book club. And as time went past, I would I added the newsletter and I added the Instagram and I added all these other components to it. But at the uh, the focal point of it was really women getting together and having conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Um, yeah, and that was two years ago. And now I'm getting ready to host the festival. <laughs> so it's been, it's been like a very long, amazing journey um, and yeah, that's, and now I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so do you always, um, invite the authors of the books that you're reading to your book club or do you just do readings? I mean, you all pick one book a month. Is that correct? Yes. We pick one book a month here in Brooklyn. We meet on the last Saturday of every month and we meet at a space called new women's space in Williamsburg. And that's what really makes like, the book club special. That one invitation with Naomi spun into another invitation to with Angela Flournoy that turned into another invitation with Margot Jefferson. And 
each time someone said yes, I was so surprised and so thankful. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it just happened very, very organically. And the conversations, and if we actually recorded video for the first uh, two book clubs. And if you, if you can really look in the video, there's not a lot of women in the space. It's probably about eight to 10 women uh, just talking to Naomi and asking questions to Angela. Like it was a very, very intimate, small group in the very beginning. Um, and each time we would have another book club, someone else would invite their friends or, uh, or tell, you know, someone on Instagram would see it and they would be uh, inclined to come. So it just, it really just grew like one person telling another person and then us like coming together. So now in Brooklyn, we about, we have about, um, about 35 women come each time. Okay. And, um, and our format is really, it's very simple. We have like a resource share in the beginning where we talk about things that are going on. So if someone is uh, applying to a, like a workshop or a residency, or if there's an upcoming festival, or if there's just any kind of like literary opportunity that they can apply to, we talk about that for the first 30 minutes. And then the second half is talking about the book and inviting the authors to come to the discussion. Um, and our focus tends to be debut authors. We always uh, invite authors that have their first book out um, because that's when they need the most support, when it's like your first book, when you're a yeah. debut author. There, <laughs> there is so much need for you to come around to like encourage people to pre-order and to like really build up the hype and support your, your book publicly. Um, and every once in a while, we will pull in a book that has um, a lot of like hype around it, of course, like a Zadie Smith book um, that everyone loves. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so it's a mix, but the the criteria is like a, a debut book. Um, yeah, and the author always comes like out of the twelve session. Like I'm trying to think each time the author, like Britt Bennett, would participated, but she wasn't able to participate in person, so we did a Skype. Um, so we find other alternatives. Of, if the author can't be there in person, we'll try to do a tweet, Twitter chat, or we'll try to do a Skype um, conversation so people can ask questions and really get that like that FaceTime with the author. Okay. Now, do you all have um, specific genres that you cover or don't cover, or is it just kind of open to um, any and all Black female authors? Yes, yeah, so it is open to um, all black female authors. We don't have a genre that we focus on. Like we've done a short story collection. We've done historical fiction. We've done literary, contemporary fiction. We've done everything. Uh, and I'm actually looking to open it up more. Like we actually haven't done a science fiction book yet. So we're like looking to do um, a strong science fiction book in the fall. Mm -hmm. And um, we've done magical realism, you know, so there's, I'm really open to all genres. I, I read all, everything. So I'm just looking for just ways to just like really support authors in the beginning of their journey. Um, so we don't have a criteria around like, oh, we don't read this. I also would really like love to read a romance book. I haven't picked a romance novel. Oh, yet. yeah. <laughs> so I've been, I've been looking that up too, like trying to find like what's a good fit for us too. So it's like science fiction, mystery, romance. Like we, we really want to read all the things. Um, and in the very beginning, I was very, I just picked the books. I was kind of like the Oprah of my world. <laughs> Come on, <And> Oprah. <laughs> I, I'm trying. I'm trying to do you proud. Oh. Um, so now I'm do, like, now I'm doing, um, I do ask the group a lot of questions. We have like a vote and we talk about the books that are like coming across 
um, our desk and like in our libraries. And so now there's like a more, now the group is so much bigger. We are having more of a group conversation and picking the books collectively. So for someone who's not in Brooklyn or not New York based, how can they get involved uh, with Well-Read Black Girl? Yeah, so we're hoping to like open more chapters, and we're gonna have a chapter in LA soon, as well as DC and Philly. Um, so I'm working on like having ambassadors and doing orientation, so they're like fully trained and like understand how to like lead the group and really have like the essence. Um, but if you're unable to meet in person in Brooklyn and the, the new chapters haven't launched yet, you can always, always like log on online and sign up for the Well-Read Black Girl newsletter. And that can be found at wellreadblackgirl.com as well as um, just going on Instagram and following us on Instagram, following us on Twitter. We're constantly tweeting and sharing things. We also have a Facebook group. Um, and in the Facebook group, people tend to post different opportunities or things they're reading and have conversation in that space as well. So there's a lot of different outlets for you to share books and share different ideas and get inspiration from um, fellow like readers and writers. So there's a lot of writers that are participating in the group who are emerging or also established. Um, and that's really great. So it's, it's nice to see when someone like Naomi Jackson or Britt Bennett, or you know, they they also participate in the group and they talk and share ideas. So it's it's a, it's a combination of people in various stages of their career. Great, and I, I love that you you offer that for people because I do think being a debut author can be you know so hard, and the fact that you already have like this kind of um, unique group of people. Um, that you can bring together to share in that experience. I think that's so great. I'm so proud of you. I'm happy to to hear that there are new chapters um, coming out. That's really exciting. It is. It's such a great feeling because I've been getting requests from people from all over, um, even as far as way as London, saying like, oh, can you bring this here? And it's just a, such an affirming feeling to see that like, it, this is a space that's really, really needed. And I mean, I was inspired to like create an environment for black women and girls that was really like rooted in literature and in love and in solidarity. And it's exciting to see that our conversations are centered on supporting one another. And especially when there's so many spaces that say that we don't. Um, and it's not true. It's the reality is like we can come together and be a community and whether it's literature or music or film or whatever creative industry that it is when black women band together we build something great um, yes absolutely you know, it's true it's so true and and it's exciting to see like every book club meeting we're allowed to engage with one another in such a pure way and we have dialogue and we have critique and we're able to like engage in multiple viewpoints like we're really supporting one another and making sure that we like we're fully heard um and that's honestly what really inspired me to start the conference aspect of it, to do the festival, because I was getting so many questions about how do I do a book proposal? How do I find a literary agent? You know, there were a lot of questions where people didn't feel they could find the resources. And, you know, my background is not in publishing. This is all very new to me. And I found myself in a space where I could say, like, okay, how can I connect these two worlds? You know, I'm meeting publishers, I'm meeting editors, I have this platform that is growing and it's thriving. And I want to connect the women and the young girls that are coming to me with these questions. I want to find them answers. So 
it's been a really, really rewarding experience. And I feel like a lot of it, I'm growing into my role. I'm, I'm making mistakes along the way, but I'm definitely like open and constantly listening to people and trying to figure out like, how can I be a better resource? And I, how can I help the people that um, believe in me? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's so, I feel honored that people are supporting me online and there's, supporting me financially in the way of like they're actually donating to the Kickstarter. They're giving their money to see this come to life. And that means a lot. That's a, it's, that's an investment. And I really do uh, respect that. And I really want to see, to see everything that, uh, that I'm working and building as a community just come to fruition. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about this, um, this conference or this festival that you're putting on. Um, when is it? What is it? Um, how can people, um, get involved, all of yeah. that, all the good stuff. Yes, I'll tell you all the things. So it's going to be in Brooklyn, New York on September 9th, which is a Saturday, and it's going to be an all-day festival, conference and festival. So the first part of the day is going to be for aspiring writers, and it'll be from 9 to about 1 p.m. where they can participate in workshops and lectures really about the craft of writing and about the nuance of just finding a literary agent, learning how to build a proposal, all the things that um, most writers find challenging when you're be, like becoming an author and you want to enter the publishing industry, just answering those questions. Um, so that's going to be the first half of the day. And then at 1 p.m., um, there's going to be just a variety of different programming. We have a lot of wonderful authors and writers confirmed already. We have... Um, Oh my goodness! I felt I need to like pull up my my list of <laughs> everyone that's coming. Um, so Tiffany Yannick is going to be there. Uh, she's an um, an amazing author, as well as Nicole Blades and Tia Williams and Naomi Jackson. Um, she they they will be there as well. Naomi is actually our keynote speaker, which is so great because it, it feels like a full circle moment. She was the first person we invited to come to the book club, and now she's going to be the keynote at the first. A conference, so that I'm just so honored that she's part of our like our community and our family. Um, so she's going to be a keynote speaker as well. Um, who else is going to be there? Oh, Diamond Sharp is going to be there. Uh, so many of the authors that have participated in past book clubs will be present on this day, and we're also introducing a youth element to it as well. So we'll have a YA stage where students can come meet some of their favorite authors. So uh, Renee Watson, who is the founder of the I2 Collective, it will, is helping me build out the the youth stage and inviting students. So that's a collaboration that I actually haven't announced yet. So you guys get the first. <laughs> BGN exclusive. Yeah, exclusive. <laughs> so I2 Collective is based out of Harlem and they are absolutely amazing. Renee is a children's author and also a teaching artist. And she went out of her way to save Langston Hughes' his home in Harlem. Um, so she has been doing a, a, a crowdfunding campaign for over the last year, and we're gonna find find a way to donate more proceeds and help her like continue to like save the home of Langston Hughes. So she's coming to be part of the festival as well. Um, and we're still in the beginning stages, so she's gonna be a co-presenter of the festival, and I'm really excited to be working with her and her community. Um, so that's all an exciting part of it as well. Um, 
and there'll be a concert too. The, those Ooh. things. Yes, we're gonna have a musical performance too to close out the festival. I'm still locking in some details around that, but that's gonna be at the very end. So programming, um, there, there's panels, there's gonna be a lot of stuff happening on September 9th. And it's gonna be a full day from about 9 to 6 p.m. of just like exciting things. And it's all gonna be black girl magic. It's all gonna be us like there. It's really gonna be focused on us and our creativity and it's good and that's not to say other people can't join in but we will be center stage right I mean the the audience is clear yes yes (laughs) yes yes and so is it just called um well-read black girl festival is that the name of it yeah so it's like the well-read black girl festival yes okay all right. Yeah. Cause I'm like, you know, I would love to be a part of that. And if I, you know, if I, if I can go, I'd love to, if I can, I would still like to, um, to donate. And because I think that's, that's just such a great idea. And the fact that it's kind of both a workshop, uh, meets festival meets conference. It's, it, it seems like it will be a lot of fun. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it's all about that too. It's just like you can get practical resources for if you if you want to become an inspiring writer, you have those resources there. But if you simply just want to like buy new books and talk to other women who are just ex, just as excited to like read and meet authors, you can find that space there. It's really just about like recreating the experience that we have online in real life and being able to like have the readers really bring their full selves and like share their lived experiences one with one another so we can talk about their eyes were watching God or The Color Purple or Sula or Kindred or all, all these things that really shape our existence. We can have this time and space to really like celebrate it together. Now, is the Kickstarter still um, going on? Is it still open? Yes, it is. It is up right now. It's going to be up for the next about eight days. Um, and we have some exciting things in store. Uh, to, tomorrow is actually Octavia Butler's birthday. We're going to be doing some special things on June 22nd oh, to celebrate nice. her birthday. And we have some more surprises in store. We have a partnership with My Lip Box, um, which is an incredible uh, subscription book box Um that I like, I support and I get books from. So we're going to have a surprise reward with, for that. And we're going to have some signed books. So there's some really great things. So if you want a signed book by Angela Flournoy or from Britt Bennett or from Jacqueline Woodson, you can like check out the Kickstarter and get, um, yeah, and pledge for one of those rewards. And those funds will go to supporting the festival. So yeah, there's a lot of great things. And then there's also... Um, the Well-Read Black Girls Scholarship. So perhaps like you can attend, but you'd like to, um, you know, pledge and allow another young person to come. Um, that's also available too. So there's also like scholarship opportunities. How cool. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, what, are, what are some of your favorite books that have been released this year? Oh my goodness, there's so many. Um, well, I really, really love... Zinzi Clemens' new book. It's what called What We Lose. It actually comes out July 11th. It is absolutely stunning. She does something really beautiful with craft, and um, it really feels when you're reading it, like it feels like you're reading her diary. Like it feels mm-hmm. like you're getting a very like intimate, um, close-up experience of her life and her her just just her like her the, her trauma. To be quite honest. Um, 
I also love Roxanne Gay's book, Hunger, uh, that came out recently, and that talks about just her experience with uh, with her with her body and coming to grips with just um, I don't want to get I don't want to give a spoiler so I'm not gonna tell what happens it's her memoir but it's really really great I'm not gonna say what happens but um, she's able to really express what it means to be a woman and to like live without shame and to really claim your life as as your own uh, and I think she does it in a beautiful way like all of her books really take you to a place where you want to be more honest with yourself um so that what else was really good this year I mean there's so many books that are yeah coming there's out. a lot <laughs> yeah there's like so many great books and and then of course I still like reread books all the time like actually I was like, just Same, reading me too yes Listen, every time I'm having like a challenging day, I'm like, let me pull out Sister Outsider. Let me get some Audrey Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there are things that I, I tend to just revisit all the time just to have, or especially Octavia Butler. Like I love Kindred. Like that's just like the go-to all the time. Um, anything by Maya Angelou. Um, what else? There, I mean, there are just so many incredible books that are constantly just like hitting bookshelves that I'm just like... Let me, you know, oh, I really love um, Samantha Irby's book. She, it's a book, it's a collection of essays. It's called um, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. And okay. if you just want to laugh out loud on the train all the time, oh my gosh, Samantha, <laughs> we'll do that for you. She is absolutely hilarious. Um, what else? What, uh, are those, what are those short stories about or those essays about? Oh, it's just, I mean, it's like, a, it's, it's just her life. Like, she's just funny. Like, I cannot wait for her to write be a television writer because I feel like that's like the next wave like she it just she's just funny like her life her experiences um you know how when your friend is just like she's texting you and she's like oh girl you cannot believe that this just happened yeah it's 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 just like that like it feels like you are your she Samantha becomes your best friend and she's like constantly sending you a text about like some incredibly like crazy thing that just happened on the subway or you know what I mean like That, that's what it is. Like a really fun, funny read. Yes. Like she's hilarious. It's like beyond funny. She's a hilarious. <laughs> like she is very funny. She's great. I'll have to check um, that one out. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. So Glory, tell us where we can find you on social media. Oh my gosh. All the things. Well, on Twitter, that one's pretty easy. It's well-read black girl. Um, well, Black is B-L-K, so well-read B-L-K girl. And then if you go to Facebook, uh, it's the same thing, well-read, well-read black girl. Um, and then, of course, on our website, wellreadblackgirl.com. Cool. And before we close, you know, I have to give you a little H-U shout-out. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Howard University, you know, just had to throw that, throw that oh. in there. Well, I, you know what? To be to keep it really real, like the, everything I do is really trying to recreate my experience at Howard. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the classes I had, like being on the quad, being in the school of C. There's nothing like it. It really isn't. And and when I'm when I'm doing the book club, it feels like I'm back in school. Like I'm back on campus. Like I'm I'm at the A building because there, there's these. There's something to be said about creating safe, safe, safe spaces, like real, truly safe spaces where you can feel like you can be yourself. You can like talk however you want, you know, be the person you want to be and not feel judged. Yeah. Um, 
And every time I was on Howard's campus, I like I never felt judged or I never felt like I didn't belong. Um, and that is something, that, and I didn't realize how special that was until I left campus. I really didn't realize how important that was until I graduated. Yeah, um, it's a unique environment. Right, right. So you can like really bring your full self, you know. So the the moment um, this became a thing, well, like where I was like, okay, like I've created a community where people feel safe. Like that that was just in- incredible. Like I never would have anticipated. Um, well, 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 red, black girl growing the way it has, and it's really just reignited my activism and my 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 generosity. Like I really want to be generous with people that I come in contact with, and I want to be able to share myself with them and share my experience. You know, um, and it's sometimes it's hard to do that, especially when we live so much of our lives online, and there's this idea that like, you know, we're not multi-dimensional like we don't have duality and you can like take a break when you have a book and you're discussing like narratives and experiences it allows you to break from your reality from a bit and just be able to have really discuss things in a way that it provides like a literary lens you know Mm -hmm. like you're able to just kind of be more thoughtful and have analysis and not like everything doesn't have to be like a quick take or a call out on things it just allows you to say like okay like this experience resonates with me and why like allows you to like ask those questions and that's what i really appreciate i really and i miss howard i miss i need to go back to i haven't been to homecoming in a little bit i miss howard listen i have not been to homecoming in so long (laughs) and since this year is like the sesquicentennial like the 150th i was like okay listen like you gotta get your behind up to dc (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Howard is, it's, it's special, man. Like my unborn child will go to Howard. (laughs) They don't even know it yet. They don't even know it yet. They don't even know. Howard, you know, it's a space where you, your racial consciousness, it definitely grows. Like, you know, we become a better black person at Howard. (laughs) I mean, yeah. And the college experience is just unique in general, but I, so much of who I am today was shaped those four years I spent on campus. I mean, I, it was, I, I, I don't have the words, Gloria. I just don't. It's so true. It's so I true. I think words. this idea of like shaping, like shaping my womanhood for sure. For sure. Like, yes. Yeah. Like understanding how I viewed myself and how the world may view me and being able to like build of my self-confidence and understanding of self-worth, all that happened on Howard's campus. Like, there's no question. Yeah. I came out more confident than I was when I went in. I can say that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, like, truly understanding what the idea of agency that happened when I was at Howard, the, you know, being a womanist, black feminism, all that happened on that campus. And I don't think I could have created Well-Read Black Girl without attending Howard University. It really was so fundamental to this this experience that I'm having now. Um, so send all your children to Howard. <laughs> In conclusion, that is what should happen. And both both of our unborn children will be yeah. there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. like, we'll let them know like later. You know, you can just kind of 
send messages, you know, like when you go to homecoming and you take them with you and you just kind of <laughs> subtly hint, like, you know, here's where, you, I mean, you know, of course, I want everyone to be free to make their own decisions, but. <laughs> but you should go to Howard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much um, for speaking with Black Girl Nerds. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you and considering that you've done so much and it's only been, what, two years? Yes, it's, yeah, it happened, all of it happened so quickly. It happened so quickly. Yeah. And, yeah, it's only been two years. And I, I need help. So folks want to, <laughs> folks want to volunteer or if they have interest in starting chapters or they want to recommend books, like shout us out, you know, email us on uh, email us at wellreadblackgirl at gmail.com or tweet us, send them a message on Facebook. I am definitely interested in collaborating and working with other women of color and growing the organization. And, and I just want to stress just like being collaborative and building community and really uplifting each other. I'm very much about just like, let's do it together. Um, because I feel like that's and that's how you should do it. Like you should work together and help each other and be supportive because why not, you know, like, yeah, why not? (laughs) You know, we're all here. And when it comes down to it, you know, we are going to be the ones supporting one another at the end of the day. Right. So I'm here for it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Black girl nerds. I love y'all. Y'all the best. (laughs) We love you too. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spreaker, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum podcast.